0: Good morning, everybody. I am Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so for today, um, I have a reflection for you. And we'll have a poem before we're done that uh, I'm going to have someone from church help me read. Um, and at the reflection, I think I'm going to bring a, a couple of resources to us today, in the spirit of it being the weekend of Indigenous Peoples Day. So first, my first resource that I want to show you is called the first nations version. This is an indigenous translation of the new Testament of the Bible. So uh, I'll read from the text of how they, how it describes itself. It says a translation of the new Testament of the Bible in English by native North Americans for native North Americans and all English speaking peoples following the tradition of native storytellers, oral cultures with its simple yet profound beauty and rich cultural idioms. So uh, that's what we're gonna be borrowing from today is first this resource, and then I have another before we're done today. You can get this uh, First Nations version uh, translation of the Bible uh, anywhere you buy books, so that's cool. I I wanted to bring some highlights to us um, uh, just because I I think it is such a, this is a really cool thing that's happening almost um, only in the last 20 years we're seeing um, very, uh, very like homegrown, very, uh, from the bottom up, um, approaches to understanding the Christian scriptures. And, uh, and it's so, so important because I don't know if, if anybody knows this, but generally the, the translations that we'll get in English of a Bible, if you just go to a store or you go online and you look up like a, a passage of scripture. That's probably going to be from something like the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible, or the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, or the NLT, the New Living Translation. There's so many translations. It's alphabet soup. But if you get uh, an English translation of the Bible, most of the time, those are developed through committees. It's people sitting around a table and they discuss, you know, like, oh, you know, here's this passage that is uh, some people translate this way and some people translate this way. How will we translate it? And the committee comes together and they decide how to translate it. Now, I wonder if you can imagine, given the sort of story and history of Christian uh the story of christendom over the last many hundred years um who do you think is at those tables when they are making those committee decisions about what to decide to include in the bible generally it's going to be somebody like vince maybe a little bit older a little bit more gray hair but a white guy like vince and uh and so we have these like long traditions which are great translations of the Bible, there's no shade on them, but they are coming from one particular perspective. And what has changed in the last 20 years is we are seeing an influx of translations of the Bible written by, for example, one scholar. And that's a really different approach to translating the Bible, not by committee, not by a bunch of people sitting around, but it's like one person who says, you know, like I have a viewpoint and I'm not gonna try to hide that. I'm not gonna try to pretend that's not there. I'm gonna bring you a translation of the Bible according to what I think. And that's really useful. Certainly we don't want that to be the only thing we ever read, right? But it's super useful to have somebody who's actually saying something and not just trying to come up with what does the committee agree is the least controversial problem or uh, translation. And then the other thing that's happened is things like. Like this which is you have a group of people coming together who are decidedly not white men uh, at, in in a position of power in our culture and deciding we are going to take to task the idea of translating the the scriptures and so that's what we have here um, I want to show you some highlights as I mentioned because there's some really cool things so first off names and places just take on a whole new meaning in the First Nations version of the Bible so I'm gonna uh, here's something here's a, a passage that most people skip when they uh, read the Bible, it's the genealogies, right? Like, genealogies you know, is just a bunch of names. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so, who was the daughter of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so. And it's just like, oh my gosh, okay, skip this part. Let me get to the next part. But take a listen to the genealogy that begins the Gospel of Matthew from the First Nations version of the Bible. <clears throat> Here is the record of the ancestry of creator sets free, that is Jesus, the chosen one, a descendant of much loved one, David, and of father of many nations, Abraham. From father of many nations, Abraham, to much loved one, David, his ancestors were father of many nations, Abraham. He made us laugh, Isaac. Heel grabber, Jacob. Give him praise, Judah and his brothers. He breaks through, Perez, and his brother first light, Zerah whose mother was fruit of palm tree, Tamar. Circle of tipis Hezron. Lifted up, Ram. Noble relative, Amminadab. Talks with snakes, Nashon. He makes peace, Salmon. Moves with strength, Boaz, whose mother was boastful woman, Rahab. He works hard, Obed, whose mother was beautiful friend, Ruth. Original man, Jesse, who was the father of the great chief, much loved one, David. Man, I mean, doesn't that just like take on so much more meaning than just a bunch of names like Obed, Jesse, David... Jesus like this. This has this has some meat behind it. So I love that. I think names take on a whole new um, a whole new life Uh, in in also uh, names of places. So uh, any of the letters in the New Testament um, are written to uh, we might think of the book of Romans or the book of Thessalonians or the book of first or second Corinthians and all of these have names that are ascribed to them. So uh, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is small man's letter to this Uh, to the village of iron village of iron is how we describe rome right and that just doesn't that just speak of like the imperial power right and, and then who is writing to the village of iron small man that's what we call paul that's it's really like there's a lot that evokes there right um let's see god is called many things throughout the scriptures just like in uh various english translations although english translations tend to um tend to like conflate a bunch of names together. Whereas in, in the original Hebrew or the Greek, there might be lots of different names that are used to describe God or that are used to refer to God. We just get something like Lord, 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 God, Lord. You know, it's like Lord over and over and over again. But it was actually like six different phrases that referred to Lord or God. Um, and so the First Nations person tries, um, tries to grab some of those different. So God is called creator. God is called great spirit. God is called great provider. God is called great chief. Uh, Jesus, as I mentioned, is creator sets free. Paul, as I mentioned, is small man. Gospel is the good road. Uh, The Pharisees in the gospels are the separated ones. I just think that one is so good. I'm gonna read from, just quickly here, from uh, Luke chapter 16, which is uh, the famous scripture of you cannot serve both God and money. And uh, listen to how this how this plays out in the First Nations version. It says, <clears throat> you cannot be loyal to the great provider and to possessions at the same time. When the separated ones, the Pharisees, heard him, they shrugged their shoulders and rolled their eyes for they loved their many possessions. I mean, that is just so fantastic. And and in a way that I, maybe just because I'm a I'm an English speaker of like standard American English as it's called. And so like all of that just feels so tired and boring to me, but this just feels like it takes on a whole new life. So as I mentioned, you can get the first nations version Bible wherever you buy books. I'm going to put it here cause I'm going to read a prayer from it a little bit later before we close today. Um, uh, but that's my first resource that I wanted to take us to the second resource that I wanted to bring to us today, um, just in this, the, the spirit of the Weekend of Indigenous Peoples Day, is a collection of essays. And this collection of essays, I don't have it to show you because I have it on Kindle. Uh, but it is, uh, it's, it's a collection of essays called Unsettling the Word. Unsettling the Word, as in the Bible. Uh, and the subtitle is Biblical Experiments in Decolonization. Now I'll, I'll read from the, the, the text, uh, uh, on the back of the, the book jacket itself, it says for generations, the Bible has been employed by settler colonial societies as a weapon to dispossess indigenous and racialized peoples of their lands, cultures, and spiritualities. Given this devastating legacy, many want nothing to do with it, but is it possible for the exploited and their allies to reclaim the Bible from the dominant powers? Can it serve as an instrument for justice in the cause of the oppressed, even a nonviolent weapon toward decolonization? That is what the, the 60 essays are about in this uh, Unsettling the Word, Biblical Experiments in Decolonization. Uh, I want to bring us to one particular uh, reflection that's in this uh, selection of essays, and it's actually a poem. Uh, each of the essays begins with like a little piece of, of, uh, of scripture. Uh, in this case, we're going to read something from the Old Testament, Leviticus 25. And then the and then the reflection or the poem or whatever responds to it afterwards. So the. Um The uh, Leviticus 25 is quite a famous passage in the Old Testament. It refers to the year of Jubilee. And I wonder if anyone, maybe that kind of rings a bell in some of your, uh, uh, past experiences of either churches or Western civilization history courses. The year of Jubilee was this thing in, uh, ancient Israel in the Israelites law. I'm going to read from Leviticus 25 and you'll see it says you shall hallow the fiftieth year. And you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, like a a joy. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me, you are but aliens and tenants. Throughout the land that you hold, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. So the year of Jubilee that we just read here, this little scripture, I wonder if you caught it. It's this really beautiful and powerful idea. Every 50th year for the Israelites, the command from their law is that all debts are canceled and everyone returns to their own family. So it's, it's pretty powerful. However, this passage comes in the midst of one of the more difficult to stomach stretches of the Bible for modern folks like us reading the Bible because the story the Israelites tell of why they are in this land that is God's, that God is, is commanding them to act this way. The story they tell is marked by violence and it's marked by like ethnic conflict. And so the essay, the, the poem that we're, uh, I, I want us to read is in response to these complicated feelings that we have as a result of this. So um, I have invited uh, my friend Erica, who is going to help read this poem. Um, I'm gonna have Jen put the, uh, the text of the poem in our chat today, and you can kind of follow along. And there's some lines that are denoted with stars. And those lines, I'm gonna scoot over so Erica can join me here. Uh, the starred lines are the voice of God, and then we are going to, or I will read on behalf of the person reflecting. So, um, this is not your promised land by Tamara shines This land is not your retirement plan. This land belongs to me. I am disappointed in the Jubilee. I turn to Leviticus 25, expecting a damning critique of the colonial enterprise, our history of conquest. I anticipate a challenge, a call to return the land upon which I live to the Mississaugas, to the Haudenosaunee's. Instead, I discover a scene that is uncomfortably familiar. This jubilee, this beautiful ideal, this law of restoration and redemption given in a violently taken promised land, freedom and right of return only granted to the chosen ones of Israel and the original earlier inhabitants are nowhere to be found. I ponder the Canaanites as I bike past another condo development. Another restored factory. This urban scene of restoration and redemption that I love. And the original earlier inhabitants are nowhere to be found. This land is not your retirement plan. This land was not given to you. This is not your promised land. It slowly dawns on me. I am not an Israelite being challenged to use our given land equitably, preventing long-term disparity between rich and poor. It is the Haudenosaunee who are more akin to that ancient nation, carrying the heartbeat of Jubilee alive in their traditional teachings. This land is not a retirement plan. This land does not belong to you. You belong to the land. It is a gift. All things are a gift. I am a foreigner to this teaching, a newcomer to this place. I have no capacity to understand the land as anything but property, to be sold for a profit not given, not received. Liberate me, great creator. The jubilee has come and gone, and I silently calculate the value of my land. This land is not a retirement plan. Thanks, Eric. Intense stuff, huh? We're going there this morning. So the poem begins by capturing the sentiment of a progressive-minded person of dominant culture. Someone like me, right? I benefit. I'm in the dominant culture. I, uh, the status quo staying in the status quo. That's going to go well for me. But I feel deep discomfort because... I am not somebody who is blind to the way that I benefit from the status quo. And so this poem captures that discomfort. I feel deep discomfort when I read the Bible, and I wonder if anyone resonates with this. When you read in the Bible, Israel taking the land of the Canaanites, all the violence that surrounded this this beautiful story of the Jubilee, but all of the violence around it, I can't get past that. I can't just sweep that under the rug. What do I do with that? And so we, when when someone like me, I say we, I mean somebody who looks like me, who is in the same position and power in the society as me, when we read this, we want the Israelites to be treated how we, in our guilty consciences, over our empire and supremacy, how we feel. We want the Israelites to be treated that same way, to be called out because we feel guilty. But then the poem flips things on us. Did you notice it? there's this, this turn right in the middle of it. It says it slowly dawns on me. And what's the realization? What is dawning on the on the the poem writer? Israel is not America or Europe. And Canaan is not their colonies. In fact, historically speaking, Canaan was the more established power. Israel, the displaced people, more like the indigenous peoples of North America that the author refers to. Now, to be sure, this doesn't justify all of the violence that we do see perpetrated against Canaanites in the biblical scriptures. And then like glorified, I mean, reading the scriptures in the old Testament are very difficult. It is unavoidable that we are entering into a world that was much more openly violent than our world now. And this doesn't necessarily settle every question on that. We we're kind of leaving some boxes open here, but what this flip, what this realization does do, is it gets us to check our identities at the door when any of us, where we're coming from, seek to place ourselves in a bigger story, a bigger story of justice or a bigger story of God. How quickly the powerful assume every story is always about them. And that is what this poem gets to. How quickly the powerful, someone like me, assumes that every story, I can be the person who is the protagonist. I'm looking through it's looking through my lens. I assume that if this story is about Israel, I ought to be able to identify with Israel. And even with with this really good sentiment about like nonviolence and reckoning with guilt that well-meaning people of the empire like me feel, even with that, there is a subtle distorting of the biblical story to be about Americans, to be about white people, to be about middle class and up people. Because we have it reinforced for us regularly that Every story is is about us because we're the ones that matter, but it's not. When we read the Bible, when we read the Old Testament, we read Leviticus, like we've just read, we are not reading the work of colonizers. We are reading the work of the colonized. Who are the people who most appropriately we can parallel with the Israelites, whose story we are entering into with the, the people who of uh, of, uh, first century Palestine uh, that were Jewish and following Jesus and in the midst of a larger empire of Rome, the village of iron, who are those people? They are more like the first nations individuals among us today than they are like someone like me. So bearing in mind that I, white middle-class American am reading someone else's mail when I read Leviticus 25, when I read about the, the the year of Jubilee. What can I learn from Leviticus 25? And bearing in mind who you are, what might you learn from Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee? Once again, as we, we, we talked about last week and we talk about regularly, all of us are, are various layers of identity. And so in some ways, we might find ourselves more in the category of somebody who is being spoken to as the Israelites. And then in other ways we might find ourselves more in the category of somebody like me who's reading somebody else's mail when I read Leviticus 25. But given that, and if we can do our best to kind of in our own way, where am I coming from? Who am I as I enter into the story? What's the right parallel for me as we come in and try to read? What can we learn from this? Well, I am drawn personally to this line at the very end of the poem. It says, the Jubilee has come and gone and I silently calculate the value of my land. And then the the refrain returns from God's voice. This land does not belong to me. I belong to the land. That part hits me like a ton of bricks because what colors all of modern American life and is so exhausting? All of the silent calculations. I wonder if that's a phrase that you can use to like refer to so much of your life. To me, it just feels like life is, constantly full of these like little background running silent calculations in my life, calculations of value, calculations of worth, of cost, of benefit, of amounts, of how much, of where to, and how long, and who next, and oh my gosh, all of the silent calculations. And all of it traces back to the most sacred possession in the world religion of economism, the bank account, right? The bank account is what determines our worth, our value, our cost, our benefit, our amounts. All of this calculation, we're just perpetually exhausted. I wonder how often it feels like you just have to like, you're constantly churning, you're like a calculator going all the time, crunching the numbers, crunching the pros and cons list, and it is just perpetually exhausting. But then of course, you know, the most sacred thing in the world the mo- is 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 this this ca- these calculations, and so we start to think like, well, the problem must be me. Everybody else must be fine, and that is maybe the cruelest part of economism, the world religion that we all subscribe to. It becomes isolating. We are on our own to survive. Every person for themselves. You can get help, but you have to pay it back. In the last couple of months, my family has had unexpected car trouble, unexpected house trouble, and unexpected health trouble. And other friends of ours as well, some of you in this church have had unexpected car trouble, unexpected house trouble, unexpected health trouble. In our case, we have been floored by the loving responses of our parents, who have generously given without demand for repayment. I mean, that is I can see a learned value behind the way our parents have helped us in this, that meshes so much better with with this First Nations perspective. Everything is a gift. It's all gift, as we write in the poem. I see so much of that all over the way that we were treated when we had this problem. But must it only be lived out among our elders who have had the privilege and enough means to come to those values on their own terms, right? We, is it only up to them? Like once you've reached the point of individual security, then you can be generous. Is it, is it, must it only be that we operate this way with family? Because my wife and I have been struck by the fact that many of our friends, these other friends who have had the same kind of unexpected trouble, health, house, car, well, they don't necessarily come from the kind of generational wealth or privilege that we do. And so it's not always the same story even though the details, even though the how hard we've worked, even though all of the other things have remained equal, but because there's not that piece of privilege or wealth of generations behind you, you experience it totally differently. Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee was an attempt to make everything is a gift. That value lived out among the whole of a community foundationally, where everyone participates in the flow of it, not just within families and not just, after the individual has gained enough security to operate that generously. The idea is that we all participate in this flow because the land does not belong to us. We belong to it. The community is not mine. I belong to the community, and likewise for each one of us here. Perhaps being a, a part of like such a flow, feels like an invitation into life out of a world of silent calculations and into something that is so much more connecting and real and life-giving. I wonder if it feels like this can be an invitation to you. Lots can be said in terms of the invitation to participating more healthily, more responsibly, like ecologically, right? Where the land is not just a resource that we use up, but rather it is something we are responsible for caring for lots can be said about that. And lots can be said in terms of an invitation to love our neighbors and our enemies more profoundly because we all belong to the same land, not the land to us. My wife and I have tried to participate in the everything is a gift flow by just like trying to be as generous as we can imagine with any person that we interact with who is having a bad day. That's that's our that, that that's kind of a mission in our life. So If I can give you one takeaway, um, something that we've learned from our middling efforts in this, um, it is, if you feel compelled to help a friend who is in need or has had a bad day, don't ask, is there anything I can do for you? Just say, I'm buying you dinner. What's your address or something like that. Like just tell them you're going to do something for them rather than ask. Because all of us, especially if you grew up in the Midwest, you're like, oh no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need anything. Thank you for, you know what you asking is enough. And of course, we do mean that, but do you know how great it is when you just say, I'm doing this for you? (laughs) Like, I think we've just discovered that that is, that, that, that is amazing. That changes things. Now, don't hear me saying that this is like a guarantee. This is not like a nice, tidy, like, I can't remember what uh, company it was, but it had a commercial about like paying it forward. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm suggesting that because I cannot guarantee that if you pay it forward or you operate this way. That you're gonna like, that it's gonna come back to you. I, it may not. Do you know the world religion of economism? What we all subscribe to, what we all live in and swim in, it has no mercy. I cannot promise that if you pay it forward, it will come back to you. I just can't. Sometimes, you know, operating this way, Kesey and I have, we've done things that actually weren't wise or shrewd on capitalistic terms, and it just. And it, you know, like it was weird and we just, you know, because you're not supposed to swim, you know, against the the stream that way, but but we did it because it felt like it was right and maybe it wasn't. I don't know. And you know, I cannot promise you that this is the most wise or perfect idea and that everything's going to work out great for you. And I can't, you know, sometimes we've been taken advantage of, right? Like we, we gave in a way and it was taken advantage of in a dishonest way and we can't control what other people do. Sometimes that happens. I cannot promise you it won't. If you... Act this way. There is no guarantee. American society won't reward you for resisting economism. But I think relationships and connection might reward you for doing that. A lot of times it's, you just get this experience of the gift. Everything's a gift. Everything's a gift. The gift of lightening someone else's load. The gift of alleviating someone else's pain. And if you believe in God, evidently, the God that Jesus shows us rewards in unseen ways these sorts of operations, these sorts of choices. And that has felt deeply true to me in the experience of coming alongside another human being and valuing their well being, not as a calculation, not as. Something in competition with my well being, but just deciding, like, I, on the simple terms of, like, we belong to the same land, I'm going to be there for you. Have you ever had an experience where it's like, wow, like, when I'm slowing down enough to pay attention, it, it is not just me and another person, but there is a third presence, the one who's weaving our stories together, the one whose land we are on. The one who mediates all of the connection that we feel in that space. So, this is the sort of stuff that I think makes life worth living. So much more so than a life that's spent on silent calculations. That is just marked by fatigue and monotony and just endless comparison. But we are encouraging ourselves to participate in the everything is a gift flow. And that is so much better. So, this. I just think what a, lesson from, uh, what a lesson for our time from a First Nations perspective on the Bible. And uh, I wanted to close, I mentioned I wanted to read one last prayer from First Nations version of the Bible, of the New Testament. And this is from uh, Colossians, or in, uh, in, uh, in the First Nations version it is called, Small Man to the Sacred Family in Village of Giants. I'm gonna pray. The Great Spirit has chosen you to be His holy and deeply loved children. So put on the new regalia He has provided for you. Put on deep feeling for the pain of others. Kindness, humbleness of heart, gentleness of spirit, and be patient with one another if there are any complaints against each other, then carry that burden basket and learn to forgive. For we must forgive others in the same manner that our honored chief has freely forgiven us. When all this new regalia is in place, let the love of the great spirit gather all the loose threads and braid them together in unity with one another. Let the chosen one guide you on the path of peace And harmony. And then, as his one body, this peace will be the guiding light in your hearts as you give thanks to the Great Spirit. Let the message of the chosen one become a deep watering hole inside you. It will then become a refreshing spring as you teach and guide one another with wisdom and understanding. You will sing traditional prayers, sacred chants, and spiritual songs as you dance your prayers before the great spirit with glad and thankful hearts. And God, I continue in that space of prayer, acknowledging where I come into this story that we read of. What does it mean for me to learn from the Israelites, to learn from the year of Jubilee when I am not really the right parallel for who those types of people are today in our world? What does it mean for me to enter in and find you teaching us and guiding us? And what does it mean for me to then turn to the next question that is presented and the next question after that and the next question after that? and do so believing that there is a God for whom everything is a gift. That life does not come back down to me and my individual silent calculations to make my life work for me. But there is a God who is generous, the great provider, and this is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. In Jesus' name, amen.